Well, uh, last week we started a series on the book of First Peter. Uh, and based on First Peter 1.3, from which the new name for our church has come, uh, we're calling the series simply Living uh, Hope. And last week on Easter Sunday, I kicked off the series with the sermon, Why Christian Hope is Living Hope. And so if you weren't here last week, I would really encourage you to go online, listen to that message. Uh, it was centered on the resurrection. It covered important information from First Peter and I think it also provided a bit of a rationale for why Living Hope Church is such a good name for our congregation. And so I hope that you'll check that out. And uh, while I gave some brief background information on First Peter last week, today we are going to back up a little bit, and I'm going to be doing something that I have never done before in the nearly 16 years that we've been a church, and that is that we're going to spend the entire sermon setting up the background and context of First Peter. And then next week, we'll start to actually work through uh, the text of First Peter. Now, not always being the most creative sermon titler, I initially titled today's sermon, Introduction to First Peter. And when my wife saw that, she was absolutely appalled. She said, Brian, you cannot title a sermon Introduction to First Peter. And so that sent me on a quest for a better title, and I came up with one. So the title of today's message is Persecution and, Respo and Response, Introduction to First Peter. <laughs> so there you, there you go. It is actually, I think, the right title uh, because an important lesson emerges as we consider the background and context of 1 Peter, and it's a lesson about how Christians should respond when pressure is brought against them by their society. And so, while we are setting up the background, we are going to find, I think, some pretty important lessons as we go through uh, the background. Let me uh, begin with a quick acknowledgement of the authorship and dating of the book of 1 Peter, as well as who the recipients of the letter were. Uh, scholars, as you may be aware, will debate absolutely anything and everything. Uh, so while scholars will debate this, the Apostle Peter should be accepted as the author of this letter that bears his name. Some have suggested uh, that the language of the letter is too elegant for Peter. Can you, can you imagine being Peter and hearing that? The, the language is just too elegant to be Peter. Uh, but some have suggested that. Uh, and they've suggested it because Scripture refers to Peter in, in the book of Acts as unschooled and ordinary, which provides a lot of hope for a lot of people. <laughs> that uh, he was unschooled and ordinary, and yet God used him uh, in a really powerful way but, but we need to keep in mind that this unschooled and ordinary man was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, he preached some absolutely amazing sermons, and he did some incredible writing. In addition to this, Peter himself acknowledges in 1 Peter 5.12 that he wrote the letter with the help of Silvanus. Uh, who was a notable man in the early church and very possibly a man of education 
and culture. And so there's really no reason for us to conclude anything other than the author of 1 Peter is the Apostle Peter. The date of the writing was likely somewhere in the range of A.D. 62 to 65, uh, likely in the early stages, possibly I should say, in the early stages of the persecutions under Nero, maybe just before that time. Uh, so the date of the writing is probably in the time frame of A.D. 62 uh, to 64, somewhere in there. Uh, by the way, church tradition tells us the Apostle Paul was likely martyred uh, in the range of A.D. 64 during the same persecution under Nero that was quite possibly in its early stages when Peter uh, wrote uh, this letter. And as 1 Peter itself tells us, the recipients of this letter were believers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia, basically modern-day Turkey. Okay? As one learns about the context of this letter and the persecutions that uh, the early believers were facing, it should not surprise us that the dominant theme in 1 Peter is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It features very prominently in Peter's thinking. It features very prominently in his writing here in 1 Peter. And we saw some of this in the text that we looked at uh, last week. For example, we saw in chapter 1 and verse 5 that the believers are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. So we see there the second coming of Jesus is, is in view. Uh, chapter 1, verse 7, which we also looked at last week, referenced the praise, glory, and honor that believers would receive when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, a reference to the second coming of Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 13, which we'll likely look at next week, it says that the believers are to, quote, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So three times in the very first chapter of First Peter, the second coming of Christ is referenced. And then it goes on throughout the book. In chapter 2, verse 12, the believers are encouraged to live such good lives that people will glorify God on the day that he visits. In chapter 4, verse 14, the believers are encouraged to rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then in chapter 5, verse 4, it encourages the believers, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And so the second coming of Jesus is really prominent in 1 Peter. And I, I share these references quickly here just to, to note that. Now, most of us in 2021 have comforts and conveniences that make life in the here and now pretty doggone good, or at least pretty tolerable. Even faithful believers in 2021, and really throughout our entire lifetimes, will often admit, I want to go to heaven but not today. I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you have probably said that. I definitely want to go. I don't really want to go today. But believers living under persecution, believers living under constant threat of persecution, their perspective can be quite different. 
Heaven looks really good when you're being persecuted. And so the minds of the early Christians were captured by the return of Christ. It was their hope. It was their comfort. They looked forward to the return of Jesus. I want to mention just a couple of things here. People often ask if we're living in the last days. And the true answer to that question is that every one of us in this room today have lived our entire lives in the last days. And I'm not saying that to try to be clever or cute or anything like that. It's just that it's true. The, the last days, I, I, I think it's pretty objectively recognized, began on the day of Pentecost. And you say, Brian... Nearly 2,000 years and counting, that is a lot of last days. That's a a lot of them. But not really. Not really. Not for a God for whom a 1,000 years is as a day and a day is is as a 1,000 years. Not for a God who operates in time and space but is himself outside of time and space. And so, yeah, it's not really that long. Our but our whole lives have been within the last days. But someday, maybe soon, we will enter the very last days. And Jesus Christ will return. It is to be our hope, just like it was to be, just like it was their hope. Listen, our circumstances are not currently as challenging as theirs. And it's possible that our circumstances will never be as challenging as theirs. You know, we're not sure. But for believers, the second coming of Christ is supposed to be at the forefront of our thinking. It's supposed to be there. You know, we often worry that people for whom that's true will become so heavenly minded that they won't be of any earthly good. You know, that's a charge that you hear leveled against people who are really focused on heaven. But the reality is that the evidence tells us the more heavenly minded someone is, the more earthly good they do. And that's because their priorities, their values come from heaven. The reality of the second coming and judgment and heaven should motivate faithfulness and gospel witness and serving others in the name of Christ and loving brothers and sisters well. And when life gets tough, the reality of the second coming in heaven helps us endure because we know that a better day is coming for us. And so the second coming of Jesus should be at the forefront of our thinking Not obsessed by it, not predicting when it will happen, but mindful of it and hopeful for it. This was the case with Peter. This was the case with the early church. The second coming was at the forefront of Peter's thinking, the forefront of this letter, the forefront of the early church. And that is not at all surprising because Peter, as uh, I shared last week, wrote to believers facing persecution, facing persecution. 
I mentioned this last week, but I want to provide a little bit more detail, a little bit more background regarding the persecution these believers faced, because it is the setup for the letter of 1 Peter. Throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were the victims of some common slanders that set them up as targets for persecution. One of these was that the Lord's Supper set Christians up for slanders uh, such as this. Since they used figurative language of eating the Lord's body and drinking the Lord's blood, the culture around them took these things literally and so it led the larger culture to accuse the Christians of cannibalism. It wasn't true. It was a slander. But the untruth was believed by much of the culture. And it put a target on the believers. Here's one I wasn't aware of until this week in uh, researching for the message. William Barclay writes that Christians' frequent reference to agape, love... And he states that gatherings of believers in the early church were often called love feasts. This led to a slander that gatherings of Christians were marked by sexual promiscuity. A significant charge against Christians, and the only one that actually had any merit, was the charge that Christians tampered with family relationships. They divided people from their families. Now, while that was never the motivation, and while the misrepresentation of how this happened was still slanderous, there is some truth to this one. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 34 through 38, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You know, this is one of the ones we just forget that Jesus said. It's one of the things he said that we just forget about, but he said it. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's a hard saying of Jesus, but he said it. He said it. Now, the truth is that when people were converted to Christianity, it was usually the un their unconverted family members that rejected the one who had come to believe in Jesus. But nevertheless, it was true that division did occur in families because of Christianity. And so Christians in the Roman Empire were already misunderstood, misrepresented, victims of slander that set them up as targets for persecution, and in that context, it's not surprising that the Roman Emperor Nero scapegoated Christians for the fire of Rome in A.D. 64. It is almost certain that Nero was at fault for the fire, but he seized on the suspicion that already surrounded Christians, and he blamed them for the fire. After all, these were the people who spoke of the time when the world would dissolve in flames such as in Acts 2, 19 and 20. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote the following, Neither human assistance in the shape of imperial gifts nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. 
And so in the hope of dissipating the rumor, he falsely diverted the charge onto a set of people named Christians and who were detested for the abominations they perpetrated, those slanders they were already victims of. The founder of the sect, one Christus by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. And the dangerous superstition, though put down for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the original home of the pest, but even in Rome, where everything shameful and horrible collects and is practiced. Christianity, everything shameful and horrible. So Christians were already subject to slanders that made them targets throughout the Roman Empire. The false charge of causing the fire of Rome further complicated their situation, and news of that, of course, spread throughout the empire. And then something else that happened in this general time frame is that while Christians had at one time been considered a sect of Judaism, which was a permitted religion in the Roman Empire, Rome finally came to understand that Christianity was not part of Judaism. And when Rome came to understand this, Christianity became a prohibited religion within the empire. And so Christians went from being within the law to being outlaws simply for being Christians. How this impacted Christians throughout the empire was largely determined by the whims of governing authorities in different places throughout the empire and the makeup of the local citizenry and how hostile they were to believers at any given time. And so here was the reality for Christians in the Roman Empire. Some believers could live virtually their entire lives with no persecution. Other believers were under almost constant persecution. Others would have seasons of relative peace. For example, if a local governing authority was uh, somehow either fond or tolerant uh, of the Christians, at least, you know, wasn't hostile to them. But a change in local governing authority could immediately change their situation. And so those who had been living in peace could suddenly be under persecution. A lot of it was determined by how hostile the local culture was to them and how much pressure the culture would put on the local governing authority. And so throughout the Roman Empire, Christians were constantly under threat of persecution, even when not actively being persecuted. It was like they always had a threat hanging over their head. You know, the sort of Damocles, I think. Is, is that how you say it? Damocles? Yeah, the sort of Damocles hanging over their head. In addition to all of this, persecution could come in very brutal and even sadistic forms. We're not talking about a little discomfort over dinner. We're not talking about a little awkwardness because you worked up the nerve to share your faith and the person didn't receive it very well. Nero was known for rolling Christians in pitch, setting them on fire, and using them as human torches to light his gardens. He might sew them up in the skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs on them to tear them limb from limb while they were still alive. Christians were subject to beheading, stoning, being thrown from balconies, executed with arrows, beaten to death by mobs. This was the reality 
of the early Christians. So with all this context, let me remind you of something that I shared last week. Peter wrote this letter, 1 Peter, not to correct doctrinal error or to address problems in the church in the area of modern-day Turkey. He wrote to encourage believers who were facing persecution or the threat of persecution for their faith. This is an important thing, an important context to keep in mind for the book of 1 Peter. And there's an important consideration for us as we consider all that the early believers went through, as we consider what believers throughout history have faced, and as we consider what many believers throughout the world today face in terms of persecution. Here's an important consideration for us. I submit this for your consideration. We need to be careful what we call persecution. We need to keep a bit of perspective about our own circumstances. I say this as someone who believes that Christians in the United States are becoming disfavored. I say this as someone who believes that we are experiencing marginalization. I say this as someone who believes it's very possible we may eventually face some fairly difficult persecution in the future. But I think that we need to be honest about our current situation. I did not spend one second of my week worried about my physical safety because I'm a Christian. And no one in here did. We gathered together to worship last week and we gather again today to worship without any concern of governing authorities shutting us down. Now I know that that has happened in some places with some churches uh, during this pandemic. I understand that. But it has been isolated. That has not been the case in most of the country. And oh, by the way, our Supreme Court has been ruling in favor of churches whenever things come before them. Okay? While it hasn't been true everywhere, everywhere within our state, our governor has never once done anything more during this entire pandemic than at times appeal to churches to close for a period of time or willingly observe limits to capacities for services. He never once forced us to close. There is extreme venom spewed against Christians on social media. <laughs> if you're on social media, you know that's true. Unless you've really insulated yourself with who your friends are, uh, extreme venom is spewed. And I believe that our country is experiencing an encroaching soft totalitarianism. I think this is a real risk. But I'd be shocked if anyone in our church or any church anywhere in our state faced anything worse than some mild discomfort or awkwardness as a result of being Christians this week, this month, the past year. And so I appeal to us to respect the persecution of those throughout history enough to be careful enough with our language, to be careful with our language, and to have some perspective on our own situation. 
The seeds of persecution may be being sown. I happen to believe they are, and that's not a good thing. But calling our experience at present persecution is being a little bit loose with language, it seems to me. But what happens if we do actually face real and serious persecution at some point? Does the Bible give us guidance on how we should respond to persecution? It does. This book was written in that context. And this book gives us guidance. Again, that's part of the background of this book. And it's instructive for us with the marginalization and disfavored status that I think we're beginning to experience. And it will be instructive for us if I'm correct and we experience advancing uh, what, what some call soft totalitarianism. I don't have time to go into that. But, but. And it will be instructive even if, like the early believers, we ever face persecution that is intense or even puts our lives at risk. How did the early Christians respond to persecution? I want you to consider 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let me summarize this. How did Peter tell believers facing persecution at the hands of evil and corrupt government leaders to respond to their persecution? Here's how he told them to respond. Continue to be good citizens. And one person said, Amen. Thank you, Robin. Facing slanders, being scapegoated, being outlaws and subject to the whims of governing authorities for simply being Christians, under constant threat of punishment, under constant threat of violent mobs, oftentimes persecuted sadistically, Peter tells them they respond by continuing to be good citizens. Submit to every human authority, Peter says. The emperor, local governing authorities. Show proper respect to everyone. Honor the emperor. Let that sink in. The emperor was Nero. Honor 
the emperor. I don't want to meddle too much here today, so I'm going to try to be careful. But some of us cannot even speak kindly of government leaders who are not even in the moral universe of Nero. I was going to go a little more specific, but you all look a little intimidating, so <laughs> you, you apply as you see fit. But people who may just have a different opinion than us, that are government leaders, we, we can't be kind and respectful toward them. And yet Peter told the early believers to honor Nero. I think we have some blind spots in how we walk out our faith. And I think this is one of them. There are some rubber meets the road aspects of our faith that we often completely ignore and completely let ourselves off the hook for. And this is one of them. And I've been guilty of this. They were to respond to actual physical persecution by continuing to be good citizens, submitting to authorities, respecting everyone, and honoring the emperor. And here's something else Peter encouraged them toward. Love the family of believers. <laughs> During difficult times, Pressure mounts, and it strains the relationships of Christians with each other. And so the way we're to respond when that happens, whether it's persecution or any difficulty short of persecution that creates tension, pandemics, racial unrest and disagreements, political tensions, whatever it is, the way we're supposed to respond to that is by loving the family of believers, which includes working hard at maintaining the bonds of peace that get challenged in the midst of difficult and stressful times. First Peter 2.15 For it is God's will... That by doing good, you should silence the talk of foolish men. William Barclay summarizes this encouragement of Peter to the early Christians facing persecution this way. Here's what he says. Their only defense against persecution was to show by the excellence of their behavior that they did not deserve the treatment they received. As we face marginalization, as we face becoming disfavored in a society that we've dominated for most of our lives, as pressure increases, and if we ever face full-on persecution, can we follow the example of the early church in continuing to be good citizens 
even when we are mistreated. Peter said to do it for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Will we continue to be good citizens for the Lord's sake as pressure increases? Is our faith deep enough that we'll submit to this kind of claim on our lives? Can we do it? Will we do it? None of this means that we don't ever offer resistance over anything. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not properly understood what Peter was saying. Keep in mind that these early Christians did stand in defiance of Rome when and how it was necessary. For example, they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. In fact, when asked to do that, They would say, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. They would not deny the Lord. They offered resistance where they had to offer resistance. But except for where fidelity to Christ was at issue, they continued to be good citizens in the face of persecution and even honor those who persecuted them to the extent possible without compromising their commitment to Christ. Can we do that? Will we do that? Or is that too wimpy for us? Do we envision ourselves as Fighters who aren't going to put up with any more of this nonsense. (laughs) I have a recommendation for us today. If we're going to be people who follow the counsel of Peter and how we respond in difficult situations, how we respond to people who mistreat us, marginalize us, and perhaps someday even persecute us, we are going to need to more fully embrace the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, our Savior and Lord, said things like, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Don't rage against that. He didn't say rage against the persecution. He said rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't worry about your life. Seek first the kingdom of God, and I'll take care of everything else. I've admitted to you recently that I came to the realization a while back that, I think I admitted this, if not, I'm admitting it now. (laughs) I came to the realization a while back that I don't love Matthew 5 through 7. I don't. That's just honest. I, I, I don't. 
Now, there's no disagreement between Jesus and Peter and Paul, as some say, so I'm not saying that. But I do find myself, I, I much prefer reading Peter than Matthew, or I'm sorry, Paul and his writings in the New Testament than I do Matthew 5 through 7. They're so challenging. They require so much self-denial. And yet, as I think I mentioned last week, it's the Christian manifesto. This is how we're to live according to our Savior. It's a path of self-denial. So let's learn from the background of 1 Peter and the experience of early Christians. The second coming should be at the forefront of our thinking. We will be better for that, not worse. Let's honor their persecution and the persecution of believers around the world by being careful with our language and not claiming persecution when it doesn't really fit. And whatever level of marginalization we continue to experience, and even if we get to the place of full-on persecution, let's remember that we're called to be good citizens, respect authorities, respect everyone, and demonstrate by the excellence of our behavior that the mistreatment that we receive is not deserved. Let's do this. And to do this, we need to embrace the teachings of Jesus and we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The early church did this and we can do it too. And so let's commit to it for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Why don't you stand?